you will open with me to the book of Mark, it is true, we have finally got to the end. We are in Mark chapter 16, I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 8. Mark 16, 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the last few weeks, we've been considering the crucifixion, the suffering, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, and there's been kind of a darkness over our preaching time. Not that it's the, the suffering and the death of Christ, all of these things are very beautiful, but there's no doubt about it, it weighs heavy on us. But today, there's good news. Today, we get into what is the most magnificent occurrence in the Gospel of Mark, the resurrection of Jesus. And the simple message of today's sermon is this, he is risen. Ha, yes. And the goal of this sermon is to just try to explain to you, to try to refresh your memory about what that means. So, I think in this text, it means at least three things. Number one, because he is risen, he is not dead. Number two, because he is risen, there is forgiveness of sins. And number three, because he is risen, one day we shall see him. Number one, because he is risen, he is not dead. Now, the... These three women, they come to the tomb of Jesus, and there's some confusion. We'll talk about that uh, a little bit later. But for now, we're going to start in verse 5, upon their entrance of the tomb. It says, And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. So we see that these women, these three women, go to the tomb of Jesus expecting him to be dead. That's, they, they're carrying spices to anoint him. Probably their Jewish burial ritual got interrupted by the Sabbath, and so they had to rest for 24 hours, and then they're returning to finish the job of anointing his body. 
And when they arrive, a young man dressed in white, probably an angel according to the other uh, gospel accounts, he tells them something very, very perplexing. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. And that's exactly what they were expecting to find, the body of their beloved Jesus who was dead. And they expected to find him in that condition, even though Jesus himself had been exceedingly clear, at least on three occasions in this gospel, that when he went up to Jerusalem, he was going to be treated poorly, he was going to suffer, he was going to die, and then three days later, he would rise from the dead. But for, for whatever reason, we're not told entirely with much clarity, for whatever reason, he could not have been clearer about it, but no one seems to understand it. And they certainly didn't believe it. And so these three women came to the tomb of Jesus expecting to find a dead man. And it occurs to me that as I think through this, that some people sitting here among us, perhaps it's your first time among us, maybe you're trying to figure out what Christianity is all about. And you came here this morning seeking a dead man. Perhaps you find Jesus and his death and his teachings very beautiful. And you're trying to figure out, how do, I, how do I learn better how to follow his teachings? And truthfully, I mean, I commend you for that search. But for you, I, the resurrection doesn't matter. I'm just here to figure out how to live better and find a moral philosophy that makes sense out of reality and out of my life. Because even as a dead man, Jesus, in my humble opinion, is the best teacher of moral philosophy that I've ever come into contact with. And I've studied all sorts of different religions. One of the things I teach in school is world history. And so I've, I've studied all these different religions, all these different philosophies. And I find, frankly, I find beauty in all of them. But I find that once I've considered them thoroughly, in every case... I still long for more than they offer. The Buddha taught that life is suffering. I think he was on to something there. And that if we want to be free of suffering, then there's a culprit and we gotta go after that. The reason why we suffer is because we desire. So if you wanna cease suffering, we must cease desiring. And that makes perfect sense logical sense to me but all after all is said and done it doesn't it doesn't make sense out of reality for me i still find myself desiring beauty and love and kindness and forgiveness and no matter how much logical sense those tenants make i can't i can't exist it doesn't I can't convince myself that it's wrong to desire such things. I can't help it. The Hindus teach me that my place in the world is entirely dependent on my own good or bad behavior. And that appeals to my sense of justice and duty. But when I look at the crooked, I don't know if you understand, maybe you relate, but when I look at the crooked places in my own heart and all the places that those lead me astray, I find myself growing hopeless with that kind of responsibility. I, I still find myself longing for mercy for my crooked condition, but karma has no mercy. 
The Zoroastrians. You know them? <laughs> okay, two of you, good. Um, it's a Persian religion, ancient Persian religion. They teach me that good and evil are equal and opposite forces in the world, and there's a great battle between them. The darker times in history show us where evil was gaining ground. The brighter times in history show us where good was gaining ground. But I find myself longing for a sure conclusion. We just don't know who's going to win. I don't want to live my life in that kind of uncertainty. I mean, supposing evil wins after all of this. I find that in my heart there's a great longing for the surety that good will triumph over evil. But the Zoroastrians don't guarantee me that. Islam teaches me that if I submit my life to Allah, then I shall enter paradise with great rewards. And again, that appeals to my sense, that, that appeals to me. I, I, whether I rise or whether I fall, it's, it's up to me. But even in eternity, I will be one who submits, a servant of Allah. And all things being equal, just so, that's probably as it should be. Allah is the divine being, I am not. One who submits, that makes sense to me. But I still find in myself a longing, not just to submit, not just to submit to God's glory, but to pass into it, to participate in it. But the teachings of Christ fulfill every longing I ever had. It leaves me wanting for nothing. Yes, life is suffering, but Christ suffered with me. Yes, there is good and evil, but Christ promises that good shall indeed triumph over evil in the end. Yes, we are servants of God, but wasn't it Jesus Christ who said, I no longer call you servants, but friends? Everything I long for, I find in the teachings of Jesus, and that's true even if he's just a dead man, like Buddha or Muhammad or Zarathustra. And I hope that if you're here and you're seeking the teachings of Jesus, that you find all you long for as well in those teachings. But the announcement of this man in white in the tomb of Jesus turns everything on its head. You come seeking a dead man, Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen. Now, <laughs> there's something very strange about Jesus' teachings. As beautiful as they are, as much sense as they make of reality for me, they are fundamentally useless if he is still dead. Now, I'm not just making that up. The Apostle Paul, if you know the chapter in 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, which he devotes a great deal of space to the resurrection, in that chapter the Apostle Paul says that if Christ is not risen, we are still in our sins, and we of all men are most to be pitied. Most to be pitied. He doesn't say that even if Christ is not risen, at least we can love our neighbors as ourselves. 
At least we can serve other people or do anything else that Jesus taught us to do. He says, if Christ is not risen, we are most to be pitied. And if he is dead, then Paul's moral philosophy, alternative moral philosophy, is clear. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. He finds nothing good in the teachings of Jesus if he is not resurrected. If he's still dead, eat, drink, and be merry. If Christ isn't risen, then it is the height of foolishness to come seeking his moral teaching. If moral, let me just let you off the hook. If moral teaching is what you want, you should go somewhere else. Like, surely you can find some guru's teaching that isn't as exacting as Christ's. Surely you can find some teaching that doesn't require so much suffering, such a so it's a huge revolution of character. But <laughs> there is good news. He is risen. Look at where they lay his body. He is not here. The world never concentrated more of its anger and vitriol and violence towards one man to kill him. And, and that concentration cost Jesus his life. And they laid him in a tomb as dead as anyone who has ever lived in this world and died in this world, excuse me. But on the third day, by the power of God, he was resurrected, never to die again. And it is precisely Christ's resurrection which rises like a sun on all of his teachings and covers them in the golden light of day. And if you want to follow Jesus, then start here. He is risen. He is not here. So, because he's risen, he's not dead. Number two, because he is risen, there is forgiveness of sins. We go back to verse seven. <clears throat> but go, this is the angel speaking, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. That one sentence moves me deeply. Um, the angel in Christ's empty tomb did not just make an announcement about the resurrection of Jesus. He gave these women a command as well. Go tell his disciples and Peter. Now, where did this angel get the message that he was delivering? We're not told, but I can only think of two options, two potential options and where he could have gotten this message. Number one, from God himself in the throne room of heaven. Or number two, from the resurrected Jesus himself. And really, it doesn't matter from whom he got the message because the outcome is the same either way, but I like to think that it was Jesus himself who gave the message and in my imagination, oh, when I see the conference that the resurrected Jesus is having with this angel, saying, I need you to tell them something. I need you to tell these women to go tell my disciples of my rising. But tell Peter. Did you see that? 
tell, it, it says, tell his disciples and Peter. Now, the last time I checked, Peter was one of the disciples. So why is Jesus singling him out like this? Well, the last time we saw Peter, times were dark for him. Jesus told Peter that before the rooster crowed, you will deny me three times. And, and you have to give Peter at least some credit. He, <laughs> he tries. He, he refuses. He says, no, I will not deny you. Even if I must die with you, I won't deny you. And to his credit again, he follows Jesus further than any of his other disciples do into the courtyard of the high priest. But when it came time for his own trial of sorts, Peter's trial, he denied that he ever knew Jesus, going so far as to call down curses on himself if he were lying about it. And at that moment, the rooster crowed, and Jesus turns to look at Peter, and no words were exchanged because no words had to be exchanged. Peter had done the unthinkable. He denied Jesus. And the last words, <laughs> the last words we hear about Peter before this moment right here in chapter 16 are this. He went outside and he wept bitterly. And only a few hours from that moment, Jesus would be dead. And for all Peter knew, think about this for a second. For all that Peter knew, that piercing glance in the courtyard of the high priest was the last time he would ever see Jesus. I mean, when someone we love dies, it's, it's not an uncommon experience to rehearse all the regrets. Oh, wish I had said this, wish I had not done that. But who of us can fathom the depth of grief that Peter must have experienced? Peter, who sent the one he loved to be executed. And I would imagine that that look and his own cowardice would haunt him forever. My insides tremble. When I hear these words, go tell my disciples and Peter that I will meet them in Galilee. Make sure you tell Peter. There's essentially two things going on here. Number one, because Christ is risen, there will be forgiveness of sins. And number two, there will be a restoration of relationship. Peter broke faith with Jesus in the most profound way. Not only did he betray his friend and master, but he sinned in a way that I imagine he would never have been able to forgive himself for. Always his betrayal would haunt his dreams and his waking hours. But Jesus is emphatic, tell Peter to come and meet me at Galilee. Because of Christ's resurrection, Jesus is able to restore Peter. Jesus can tell Peter, weep no more. I'm alive. Jesus can tell Peter that because he triumphed over the grave, that there is no longer any atoning work to do. All is forgiven. 
And that message, frankly, comes unfiltered right down to us today. That's the implication of Christ's resurrection. Back to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ is not risen, then we are still dead in our sins. It's Christ's resurrection that seals our forgiveness. But why? What is lacking of Christ's death that the resurrection had to come in order to seal our forgiveness? Here's why. Because if he gave himself as an atoning sacrifice, perfect as he was, and then he had stayed dead, then he would be no more significant a sacrifice than the yearly goats and bulls that were sacrificed on the Day of Atonement. Every year, the priests sacrificed, the high priest sacrificed animals according to God's law. And by that sacrifice, the sins of the people were forgiven. But those goats stayed dead. And that meant that every year, more and more and more animals had to be brought in to die for the sins of the people. But when Jesus was raised to life, never to die again, he became the final sacrifice for sin. The wages, as you know, of sin are death. And he accepted the wages on our behalf. But if he remained in that tomb, defeated by death, then in another year we would need someone else to accept our wages. But in his resurrection, Christ conquered the power of death and entered into everlasting life. And now, in Christ, our wages have been paid, and there is no death left for us. We still die, yes. But death has lost its victory. Death has lost its sting. So because of Christ's resurrection, All the wages have been paid, and there is forgiveness of sins. Yes. Now, uh, I've been preaching long enough in my life uh, that I've had people, enough people talk to me after the service uh, to know there's likely somebody sitting in here right this minute listening to me who has convinced themselves that they are beyond this kind of forgiveness. You look at your own transgressions, and you observe the trail of wreckage left behind you, seemingly at every turn. You see the blatant failures that have characterized your life, and you are convinced that the only thing left for you to do is to go outside and weep bitterly. But this word is for you. Go tell my disciples and Peter. Christ's resurrection mercy extends to Peter and it extends to you too. Your sin is not dark enough to resist the everlasting light of Christ's love and forgiveness for you. He paid for you because he loves you. And it is my privilege to announce to you that the long night of your bitter weeping has ended. And Jesus has his eyes on you, saying, make sure he knows Make sure she knows 
to come and meet me in Galilee. And you might object. <laughs> I know. You might object. You say, how do you know he'll forgive me? How do you know he'll restore our relationship? How do you know any of this? Well, it's been a while since we mentioned this in our series through Mark. But maybe you'll remember that Mark is only the writer of this gospel. He's, he's not the one who actually witnessed the life of Christ. He was there for a little bit of it. But he did not witness all of these things. Do you remember who it was who narrated this gospel so that Mark could write it down? It was Peter. And I can only imagine that as Peter got to this part, he had to stop. Go and tell his disciples and Peter. I'm only imagining, I know, but I don't think it's too far off to think that perhaps he would have wept at those words. But it wasn't the weeping of bitter despair. It was the weeping of the joy of forgiveness the incomparable love of his Savior. So how do I know that he'll forgive you? Well, let Peter be your witness. Number three, because he is resurrected, because he is risen, one day we shall see him. I can't even start this one. <laughs> the title of the point wrecked me. Mm. One day we shall see him. We need to start in verse 7 for this. The last part of verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Just as he told you. Now I haven't drawn attention to it yet, but surely you heard as I read the passage in its entirety in the beginning that grief and fear and anxiety is a theme that runs throughout this whole story. The women go to the tomb in grief, and when they see the angel, it says that they were alarmed, which is a pretty tame translation. It's more like shocked and deeply fearful. And when they leave the tomb, they left in trembling and astonishment and fear. Now, I understand their fear when they see the angel. That's the universal experience of anybody who ever meets with an angel in the scriptures, fear. But they're told that Jesus is risen. And they flee from the tomb afraid. Now why are they afraid? It doesn't tell us. But I think we can fill in the details. There's this uh, magnificent song by a singer named Foy Vance. It's called Two Shades of Hope. And throughout the, throughout the verses, he's telling different stories of people in tragic circumstances, whether it's a, a broken marriage or a terminal illness. And the point of the song is that it's not the tragic circumstances that hurt the worst. It's hope that deals the hardest blow. You hope that your marriage be, will be restored, but it's not. You hope that you will be healed, but you're not. And that's tragic enough. But it was the hope of restoration and the dashing of that hope that deals the hardest blow. And it seems to me that this must be 
what induced fear in these women. Their beloved Jesus is dead. They had hoped that he would somehow be saved from this torturous death, but he wasn't. And so they came in grief to his tomb, and then all of a sudden, their world is turned upside down when this angel says, the one you love is alive, and you will see him in Galilee. The angel offers them hope, and, and maybe they're just fearful to let that hope in. Three days ago, hope dealt the hardest blow to them, and here they're invited to hope again. And it further occurs to me that we today share the same condition of these women and also the condition of the disciples. They're given hope that Jesus is resurrected, but they don't see him. Instead, they must go to Galilee, and there they are promised that if you go there, you shall see him. We believe that Christ is risen, but we don't see him. We're told that one day we shall see him. And thus, we're invited to hope. One day we are promised when we have traveled throughout all the full measure of our lives and when we arrive in the everlasting kingdom of God, we shall see him. And I, I wonder, like, even now as I'm saying this, are some of us afraid to hope for that? And here's where I tell you, there's an awfully big difference between hoping for something and hoping in something. Prepositions matter. There's a difference between hoping for something and hoping in something. We can hope for all kinds of things. We can hope for the marriage to be restored. We can hope for the sickness to be defeated. We can hope for a spouse. We can hope for our children to become good men and women following Jesus. But it's when we begin to hope in those things, that hope deals the hardest blow. Here's what may be surprising. We are never promised any of those things. God never promises to heal our sickness. God never promises in this life to alleviate our loneliness. God never promises any of those things. But there is one thing that we are promised from the mouth of the risen Jesus himself. One day you will see me. And that is a promise that we can hope in because Jesus will never break his promise. And so we know that the disciples had to make that three-day journey to Galilee before they saw Jesus. And can, uh, can you imagine what those three days must have been like? Uh, we don't know how long it took them, but it's generally agreed that it's a three-day walk. Maybe they did it in two. Maybe, I don't know. But, but I, I can't help myself but think, were they afraid of the hope of seeing Jesus? Did doubts arise in their heart that maybe it was all a dream? Maybe, maybe the women who got this message, maybe it was just a hallucination. Their grief was so profound, they wanted so badly to see this. They wanted so badly to hear a message of hope, and so maybe they just made it up. Not, not in a malicious way, but because they were grieved to the core. But one day, their feet crossed into the territory of Galilee. And they walked up a mountain, and there they saw Jesus. Jesus. 
in the resurrected flesh. And all that they had hoped for and all that they had hoped in was right there in front of them. And the invitation this morning is the same. We do not yet see him, but we have been promised that at the end of the journey, we shall. The destination is set. Jesus waited in Galilee for them. He didn't surprise them halfway in Samaria. He said, I'm in Galilee, and you shall see me there. Brothers and sisters, Jesus had promised us. He has promised us that he is waiting for us in the everlasting kingdom of God. One day he shall return for us, and he has given us hope as a gift to keep us walking on this pilgrimage to his celestial city. And if you... If you quiet yourself long enough, you will hear the faint echoes of the glad songs of salvation that the saints before us have already begun to sing in that kingdom. And even even the faintest note of one of those songs is enough to keep us walking through the darkest of times. And we must, if we are to continue, we must bend our ears to those songs. A few weeks ago, I was eating lunch at my school, and I was chatting with one of the English teachers, and we were talking about what we had been doing in class that morning, and she said something that (laughs) astonished me. She wasn't expecting to. She, it just happened. She, when I was asking her about what they were doing, she said, well, you know, we're comparing a couple of Greek myths. Like, oh, yeah, okay, so which ones? Not that I knew what she would be talking about anyway, but she said, oh, we're comparing Odysseus and Jason and the Golden Fleece. I was like, oh, okay, cool. Um, I, I don't, I mean, I, I know a little about, about Odysseus, but in case you are like me, let me try to explain the kind of comparison that she was making. Um, Odysseus, uh, the reason why she was drawing the comparison between these two is because uh, they both made journeys, Jason and Odysseus, they both made journeys and they both passed through the same place. That place is called the Narrows. But when they passed through the Narrows, both of them had very different responses to this place. Now, it's probably been a while, so let me remind you that the Narrows, that's where the sirens live. Remember the sirens? Drudging up ninth grade for you? Yes. So the sirens were those women who sang to the sailors songs that were so tempting, so beautiful, that men went mad and steered their ships into the sharp rocks around those islands, and that's how they died. Now, you might remember that when Odysseus goes through the narrows, they're close to the narrows, he instructed his men to stuff their ears and to tie Odysseus to the mast. Leave my ears open, tie me to the mast. He said, I want, I want to hear that song. So he told his men to tie him to the mast, leave his ears open. And no matter what, he said, keep rowing. No matter what I say, no matter what orders I give you, keep rowing. And when he heard the sweet songs of the sirens, Odysseus went mad. He shouted at his men to turn towards the island, but they kept rowing because they couldn't hear the songs. You see, 
And the point is, Odysseus wanted to be tempted. He wanted to go to the very edge of destruction, but not plummet over the side. And this is not a commendable way to live. But then there's the story of Jason. You may not be familiar with this one. But he also, he and his men also traveled through the narrows. And when he perceived that they were close to the sirens, he called Orpheus. Now, Orpheus is a very famous musician. And he could play the most beautiful music that anyone had ever heard. Nobody was a more beautiful musician. Nobody could produce more beautiful lyrics. Nobody could produce more magnificent melodies, more soaring choruses than Orpheus could. And so when the sirens began to sing, Jason says to Orpheus, it's time for you to sing. Fill my men's ears with your songs. And here's what he sang. Orpheus took up his lyre as the sirens began to sing. He sang to the heroes of their own toils. He sang of them how, gaunt and weary as they were, they were yet men, men who were the strength of Greece, men who had been fostered by the love and hope of their country. They were the winners of the golden fleece, and their story would be told forever. And for the fame that they had won, men would forego all rest and delight, why should they not toil? They who were born for great labors and to face dangers that other men might not face. Soon hands would be stretched out to them, the welcoming hands of the men and women to their land. And it was by attending to a song more beautiful than that of the tempting sirens that Jason's men sailed through the narrows unharmed. Brothers and sisters, listen. The songs of the kingdom are playing. If you listen closely, you can hear their voices coming to us from that fair land. But those songs are not like Orpheus's songs. Those songs told of the great deeds of men. But the songs of the kingdom tell of the great deeds of God. And of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And those songs do not tell of the hands of men and women who will be extended, up, extended to us when we return to Greece. But of the resurrected hands of our Lord who will welcome us into his presence with great joy and love eternal. And our hope is this. That one day, everlasting light will come streaming into the darkness of our world. One day, everlasting love We'll hurl all of our sins into the sea. One day, everlasting life shall swallow all of our disease and death. One day, everlasting joy will melt all the winter of our fears and anxieties. And one day, everlasting laughter will drown out our sorrow and despair. All because he is risen. Our hope is sure. One day we will see him. So, let us journey on in the hope of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we come to the table, as we do every week. And we may be tempted to think that these elements and this ritual 
that we do has nothing to do with the future. It's nothing to do with the resurrection, but has everything to do with the atoning death and sacrifice of Jesus. That's true. This is what it symbolizes. It symbolizes his body broken. It symbolizes his blood poured out for the covenant. But when Paul wanted to talk about this meal, what he said was, as often as you do it, you proclaim the Lord's death. There's the death. Until he comes. These elements have roots that stretch back into the crucifixion and death of Jesus and stretch forward into the resurrection of Jesus. And what you are tasting when you ingest these elements, they're notes of the heavenly songs. This is the best we can get here in this world to see Jesus. But when you come, quiet yourself. Listen for the song. Listen for that voice that is so magnificent. Let's journey on together. Let's pray. Father, it makes us so very glad to hear news from the distant country. It's as if you have opened our eyes to see things that we have forgotten were there, opened our ears to hear things that otherwise we would have passed right by. So would you grant us the grace now as we sit with Jesus at this meal together? Would you grant us the grace of hope to keep us walking on? We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, for all who are members of Christ's family, this meal belongs to you. If you're not a member of Christ's family, he, he has done so much to, to reserve a place for you at this table. You, you, you only must believe. So, so if you're not, you need to understand, believe. Your sins will be forgiven, even yours, and your place is reserved here. So come.